Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? Another big thank you to Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies. He did the heavy lifting editing this episode, and you can learn more about his work at idealvideostrategies.com. Also, if you're not listening to Hacking Your ADHD with Will Curb or ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers, you're missing out on two solid ADHD resources. In Hacking Your ADHD, Will Curb explores ways you can work with your ADHD brain to do more of the things that you want to do. And ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers is a show designed for adults who have really good intentions, but slightly wandering attention. The link for both those shows will be in the show notes. Finally, as you know, the best way to support this show is by sharing it with others, either online or in person. So let the folks in your social media world know we exist. Tell your family about us during the holiday season. And if you wouldn't mind, please go put that five-star rating and review in iTunes. In fact, go ahead and do it now. Just pause the show and we'll wait. Welcome to ADHD Essentials. Today, we're talking to Emily Kersher Morris of the Mind Matters podcast. Emily is a mom with ADHD who has kids with ADHD and is married to a husband with ADHD. She's also a mental health counselor who works with gifted and talented kids to help them manage the social-emotional challenges that they face. In today's episode, we talk about making educational decisions for our kids, reframing our expectations to help us accept our flaws and navigate perfectionism, the importance of taking a strength-based approach with our children, process over product, and we take a deep dive on motivation. All right, let's get rolling. Well, I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was a kid back at a time when really girls were not ever really diagnosed with ADHD, you know, but my mom was a special educator and she knew that something wasn't quite clicking. So, you know, she went down that path with me. And then, you know, I definitely went through a time kind of in my early adulthood where I'm like, no, that was a misdiagnosis. That's not really, you know, what's going on. I can handle this all on my own. And then finally it was, it was just too much. And I kind of went back and reassessed things and, you know, that's made a big difference, but especially like, I think a lot of parents, I kind of came back full circle to that through my own kids diagnosis, you know, kind of realizing their struggles and what they're facing and then making those connections to what I'm dealing with professionally. I started as a teacher and then I was a school counselor and now I'm in private practice and working with kids and teens who have a variety of things going on, but executive functioning issues is one of those. We just did an interview for your podcast Mm -hmm. and discovered that we have a pretty similar trajectory because I also did the, the teaching to counseling to doing my own thing road. Yeah. What was that road like for you? What, how did you wind up going from teaching to school counseling to private practice? I was never going to be a teacher. That was never in my plan. However, I was actually going to go into the Air Force to be a cryptologic linguist. Okay. So we'll talk about the gifted stuff in a minute. <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know that I should put this on, the, on a podcast where people will hear it, but that's okay. You don't have to. No. Well, I I had a boyfriend and he thought that I should stay in locally where I grew up at, when I graduated high school. So I ditched the Air Force and decided to major in elementary education, which was a total, there's a whole lot of stuff we could go to with that, but we won't, I don't think that this is the podcast for that. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. I, I connected some dots. We made some assumptions. I think I might get the story. And so anyway, so I taught and that was fine. I didn't really love being in the classroom, like in the general education classroom, but I had been a gifted at like in a gifted program as a kid. And so I went back and got a master's degree in gifted education and I really loved it there. But what I really loved about that was the social and emotional 
piece of what those kids needed. And a lot of them were twice exceptional. So they were gifted and had another diagnosis, but I knew I always wanted to do more. And so that's when I went back and got a second master's in counseling and family therapy. And, you know, I love it. I love the connection that I get with the kids. I love that I really get to see the kids who are struggling make progress where I feel like even as a school counselor, I didn't always have that because you know, okay, we've got about 10 minutes. Okay, now you have to go back to class. So having that, that real ability to, to develop that relationship and see that change and see the changes in the families is, is pretty amazing. Okay. So if I, if I understood all that right, you went into the classroom because of the patriarchy <laughs> and then yes, you didn't like it, but you found that you enjoyed the social emotional world of the gifted and talented kids. Right but you weren't really able to address that in the classroom in the way that you wanted to. So you went into private practice in order to work around that particular boundary and address the social emotional needs of them in a, in a different setting. Right. And, you know, I think, you know, you mentioned, you know, that we just recorded an episode for my podcast, which is the mind matters podcast, which focuses on those gifted and twice exceptional kids and teens. And thank you for remembering the title of your podcast for me because I totally blanked and that's why I didn't say it. That's okay. No, but what you had mentioned was you had mentioned about your experience in the classroom really struggling with some of the executive functioning needs that went along with being a teacher. And that was definitely the case for me too. Not that I don't still have those struggles with some of the things in private practice, but it is a little bit different. I have a little bit more flexibility and, you know, I'm I'm able to kind of guide what my areas of interest are a little bit more rather than being confined by what the expectations of the schools are. Yeah. And and in private practice, when you're working for yourself, if you screw something up, you're only accountable to you, really. Like right. there are certainly people out there probably listening to this podcast who emailed me at some point in the past year and I have not gotten back to them because that email went poof in my head and then in my email list. And I apologize. I, email is a struggle for me. Feel free to email me back if you want. <laughs> but in a school, that's a huge deal if you don't email back a parent. For us, if we don't email back that potential client, I mean, we're potentially losing money. We're potentially losing a client. But, but it's not, I, I'm not going to fire myself over it or put myself on probation or something. Right. There's more forgiveness in that way. Yeah, depending on what your level of perfectionism is and how, you know, hard you are on yourself, but I think that hopefully that place of self-acceptance, you know, comes, but you know, yeah, those high standards are are difficult too. Yeah, no, I um I got over perfectionism for the most part. So, you did. I it it, it comes and goes in waves, you know. I think right now the struggles that I have with perfectionism are probably more related to, well, it's so interesting, you know, so I talk to parents and I talk to families and I talk to teachers all the time about helping kids and working with kids and how to do that. But then when it comes to my own kids, you know, it's like, I feel like people, I have to like switch that hat, you know, from counselor to parent. And I think parents think that I have it like all figured out and I don't, (laughs) you know, when I'm, when I'm working with my own kids. And so just that expectation. And I try to really be very real and raw and vulnerable about that with families. Like these are some ideas that I think might work, but trust me, I don't have all the answers. I just have, you know, some strategies that might work that we can try. And so as I try to work with my own kids, that becomes very apparent to me that, that, you know, we're all just trying to figure it out. Yeah. And because your kids have ADHD as well. Yeah, they do. Yeah. I've got three kids. I've got a sixth grader, a fourth grader and a four-year-old. And so the two older ones are, um, have ADHD. Actually, it was funny because we, uh, I was late to our interview time because I was at a 504 meeting for my son this morning. And so, like I said, he's a sixth grader and I'm kind of kicking myself for not advocating earlier. You know, I think in elementary school, a lot of times we kind of let those 504 plans you know, they're really good at elementary level of making those accommodations in the classroom without necessarily having anything formalized. And that's really, you know, nice that they are able to do that. But this year when he transitioned to the middle school and having all of the different teachers, some of those executive functioning struggles really started coming out. And so here we are a quarter into the school year and finally just getting something into place. I wish I had done it when he was in elementary school. Yeah, I am in a similar position with my fifth grader. They're both fifth graders, but one of them. We're in the process of getting that diagnosis done so we can get the 504 put in place because he is beginning to struggle. And I I knew that this was how it was going to play out. I was like, there's no point in trying to get a 504 in elementary school because they're not going to give it to me because he's not struggling enough. So I'll just wait. 
And now those struggles are starting to happen. I'm hoping that they're visible. I don't know if they are yet, but he was talking to us in the car on Saturday. We were driving into Boston to go see Mystery Science Theater 3000 live on stage. He was talking about how he just finds it really hard to be organized enough to remember to bring all of the things he needs from one classroom to the next. Mm-hmm. And the iPad was what was sort of putting it over the top for him in his story. But I rem- I was sitting there going like, I remember when I was a kid and I felt the same way. Yeah. Like, how do I carry all this stuff and leave the classroom on time? Well, you know, that's interesting that you say that he wasn't struggling enough. That's one of my big frustrations, I think, with the schools sometimes is that And especially, you know, so in my area where I really focus a lot with the kids who are either identified as gifted or high ability or whatever, you know, kids who are bright, which many kids with ADHD are, they compensate for those struggles because they have that cognitive ability. And so that masks where their struggles really are. But when you're looking to place a child on a 504, you have to look at what, without any mitigating effects. So without any medication, without the supports that they're getting from the teachers or from the parents or whatever, what would their level of functioning really be? And that's not always defined just by grades. And I find that if if schools, people who are not as well-trained or as well-informed will kind of fall back on that. Um, But if you challenge them a little bit, you know, they need to provide those accommodations for kids. They can't just say, well, they're not failing, so therefore they don't deserve this. Right. I think that sometimes parents are confused by that. And and sometimes schools don't really understand that either. I am fully aware of that. And I also know that it kind of doesn't matter what the law says. It matters how the law is enacted and enforced. And if everything seems fine, then you're picking a fight. And my perspective is if I cannot pick the fight and have it happen later, and my kid's going to be mostly okay then I'll do that. And as it turned out, I should have picked the fight because my kid is definitely having some school resistance. But interestingly, all of that is social stuff. It's not academic stuff. And it grows out of not trusting teachers because he doesn't think they have his best interest at heart because he's got bullied in school periodically in elementary school. Nothing, nothing really significant. I mean, I shouldn't say that. Nothing, nothing that would reflect poorly on the school. Let me put it that way. But enough kind of scattered here and there that he was like, these teachers aren't doing anything because the only reason that stuff got shut down was because I stepped in. And as a guy who knows schools, I constantly said to him, we have to go through the proper channels. So talk to the kid, talk to the teacher, talk to the aftercare coordinator, talk to this person, talk to the principal, talk to that person. And then nothing happened. And then finally I had to step in and go right to the parents some of the time, not even talk to the principal, but go right to the parents. And on top of that, both of my kids are gifted too. And emotionally less than gifted, they kind of lag behind developmentally with their emotional understandings, but they're super insightful. So they're like, how come you don't understand what my needs are and I'm getting in trouble for stuff that's not a big deal and this other kid is doing things way worse than me and he's getting away with it. I guess I can't trust adults. Yeah, that perception. And, you know, that asynchronous development of those gifted kids, you know, where they have that cognitive ability, a lot of times that works against them too, because we expect a child, you know, the kid who's always like, like the tallest kid in the class and looks a year or two older. And so then we expect them to have the maturity of that age with kids who are very bright as well, especially when they have a very high verbal ability. We expect them to have the logic and the reasoning and the emotional regulation skills. And quite often, they may just be consistent with their same age peers or possibly even a little bit lower. And that's, you know, there are a lot of factors that go into that. But when we put them in that, it's almost like a double bind, you know, like they're really struggling, but we, and we expect, we have expectations that we wouldn't have even for their, for the other kids who are their same age. And oftentimes for those gifted kids, they get it. Like they understand sort of human behavior and the rhythms and structures of the classroom that are unspoken. Like the teacher's going to do this, this, and this, and that kid's going to do this. And he's not going to get in trouble for that. But if I do that, I'll get in trouble. Or if Sally does that, Sally will get in trouble. And that's not fair because I'm, I'm sort of insightful and aware enough to pick up on these patterns, but I'm not yet emotionally mature enough to recognize that that kid gets away with it because there's something going on with him that makes it harder for him to not do that, to not call out or to not stand up or whatever. And so the teacher's being understanding of his needs. And the teacher also understands that I can absolutely not call out. And so I shouldn't be allowed to. Mm-hmm. They're not quite there yet. 
Right. Well, they don't have the life experience behind them to put that into context. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, I feel like a lot of times kids who have, there are so many families, you know, with kids who are, who are struggling, whether they have it, whether they have a diagnosis or not. And sometimes we minimize things, teachers minimize things, you know, without, and not that, not that you need to blow things out of proportion, but sometimes you do need to directly address things. I know when I first started teaching, I was so afraid to tell parents that their child was struggling. I was so worried that that was going to be met with resistance or that I didn't know what I was talking about. That was my own insecurity. But I think we need to remember that teachers are human too. I mean, and, and they don't always know what to do. And, and, but parents need to know that it's okay to be quote unquote, that parent. You need to advocate for your kids because in addition to helping them get the needs that they met, that they have right now, you're also going to show them that it's okay to self-advocate in an appropriate way. And that's a really important thing to model for them. And also, if your kid has a special need or special needs, if your kid has ADHD, if your kid is gifted, if your kid has dyslexia or autism or whatever the case may be, you're not a helicopter parent. You're on top of things more because you need to be, not because you're a helicopter parent. Helicopter parents are the ones that don't need to be on top of things and are on top of them anyway. That's different. What often what special needs parents become is the lawnmower parent where they're clearing all the debris and making it too easy for their kid to go through the path. We don't want to do that either. We want to, we want our kids to struggle and fail and have some difficulty because that's where resiliency comes from. And that's where a feeling of self-worth comes from. Right. But we don't need to worry too much about talking to the school a little more than we feel like we should. Right. Well, it's always better. And ultimately, that's how you build rapport with those teachers too, you know, where they know that they can come to you, you know, but it's interesting you mentioned about, I'm, I, I frequently talk about what is that balance between enabling a child versus providing them with accommodations. And that's really what we're talking about there with the helicoptering and the lawnmower parent. And just when I was in this 504 meeting this morning for my son, one of the things that we're talking about, and they actually did some other, you know, um, emotional assessments where they looked, you know, and we know that he has a lot of anxiety, specifically performance anxiety, and he struggles with some tests, you know, when he's, when he's taking tests and they placed him, you know, and so in sixth grade, they kind of tier the math. And so they placed him in the gen ed math class, which is fine. I really don't, I mean, Ultimately, I really don't have a problem with that, but I just see other evidence that shows that he should probably be up in this other place. And so we're having this conversation. And my thought is, one of the questions that they asked during this 504 meeting is, do you think that he would want to be in that advanced math class? And ultimately, like the answer is no, he's getting a 97% in the math class that he's in right now. And he's, but that's safe for him. But we need him to have kind of that growth mindset. We need him to be able to be challenged and know that he can both persevere through that challenge and be successful and ask for help when something is difficult. And that's where he struggles. And it's like, if we're not putting him in an appropriate place, is he going to have those opportunities? One of the areas where I struggle with that is if you move him up to that next tier, right? How is that going to affect his feelings about math? Is it going to be a high enough increase in challenge that he's going to start to hate math and think he sucks at it. And isn't that more detrimental than leaving him in the spot where he can get the 98 and then he loves math and now goes into math as a career. Right. Or is it going to be just challenging enough that he now he's engaged with it and he's like, this is way more interesting than I thought it was. That's always a tricky balance for me. A hundred percent. That's always the thing that it makes me wonder when I encounter situations like that. And like my kids are in band for hopefully another week. They hate it. They hate band. They hate their teacher. I shouldn't say they hate their teacher. That's not the right word. They're afraid of their teacher because band is a very like, you have to perform. Like you've got to do things at this level so we can go do the show and all that kind of stuff. And the band teacher, my impression is he's a little barky and he's a little bit like drums do this and horns do that and rah, 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 right? which is, that's a band teacher approach. And my kids just are not handling it well. And they, they have a little bit of that school resistance. They despise the fact that on Tuesdays, which is the day we're recording this, so I get to deal with this in like a couple hours, they're going to come home at about 
And then at 345, we're going to hop back in the car and drive back to school, which they don't want to go to school in the morning, let alone back again on Tuesdays and have some drum lessons. And then they're going to come home. And so band is just not working for us as a family, but they're not going to leave band until they talk to their guidance counselor and request to leave band, which we talked about last week and then they didn't do it. (laughs) So they might take band all year long if they don't self-advocate. Self-advocacy matters and they're doing this on their own. Yeah. But I'm all for getting them out of band because it's it's adding a layer of stress to our house and our family that doesn't need to be there and they're not getting anything out of it. So I'll let them suffer somewhere else. They're in tempo. They can suffer in the dojo. That's fine. Right. No, I think you're absolutely right. And and I think, you know, yeah, making those educational decisions for your kids, you know, one of the t- topics that comes up, up a lot on on my podcast is acceleration and, you know, bumping kids up. And there's a lot of kind of, I think the common knowledge is that you don't want to accelerate a child because there are negative social and emotional impacts of that. Ultimately, the research does not support that. It's often very beneficial for kids. But weighing all of those options and you know, ultimately there are so many variables. It's really difficult and you kind of just have to make the best decision that you can at the time. And I have to remind myself of that and I talk to my clients about that, that even if it's a mistake, the decision that you make, you know, you gather all of the information that you have, you can't go back and like be upset with yourself depending on how it works out. That level of self-acceptance as a parent, again, you know, is kind of really, really important, you know, in advocating for your kid, but it's hard. I mean, I always say my, my mom always has wonderful <laughs> and sometimes cynical parenting advice, but she's like, you know, you're going to mess up your kids one way or another. <laughs> <laughs> And she's like, we did it to you. You're going to do it to your kids. It's fine, you know? And, and I kind of jokingly say, you know, my, my, my measure of success as a parent is raising my children to be successful enough to pay for their own therapy. <laughs> and so, <laughs> but yeah, it's hard. And it's like, and we put so much weight in these decisions and I don't know how much is it really going to help or hurt. It's hard to measure. We turned out okay. So probably our kids will turn out okay. That's there too. Yeah, I know what my kids know. My kids know that I love them and that I'm there for them and that if they need me, if they need me up at the school or if they need help, you know, I'm going to be there. Even when I get frustrated, I think they know, I hope they know that I'm never really mad or angry at them. I'm frustrated because I have a certain goal. I want to get to basketball practice on time or whatever the thing is. And then that's not going according to how my, what my plan is in my mind. You know, I, I tell them when I mess stuff up, I let them know, you know, when I feel frustrated, I really try to have that at the surface so that they know that, you know, I don't have it all together. Nobody does. And I think more than anything, that's the thing that will make the biggest difference that will get them to the point in adulthood where they're like, well, that didn't work out the way I wanted it to, but at least I know mom was kind of there with me. She, she would have done whatever. The goal is a healthy, well-adjusted 26-year-old. Mm-hmm. And that's a while from now. You want to have a healthy, well-adjusted adult. And right now they're kids and you've got time. Right. Like I look at my kids and I'm just like, I didn't think anything like the way they think. I didn't have any insight into anything until I was in like high school. And then all of a sudden I was the insightful kid. Like everybody was like, Brendan knows all the things. She can figure it out. Like I was the one people went to for advice and stuff which makes sense given what my trajectory turned into afterwards. But I didn't have any kind of insight at all into most things when I was in elementary school and middle school. And it blows my mind that my kids get stuff at the level that they get it. I think that's pretty advanced. I mean, I think I was well into my 30s before I had any any clue of most of what was going on. No, actually, I always say the two things that I feel like changed me more than anything else were becoming a parent and going through my counseling and family therapy program. Those two life events are probably the things that really forced me to look inward in a way that perhaps maybe I hadn't before and helped me to really, I don't know, see things in a different, through a different lens, you know, when I'm, when I'm talking about, you know, helping others or being there for my family. So in what way, what's the new lens? You mentioned perfectionism earlier. I know that I don't have to be perfect. I know that it's more important for for me to accept my flaws, especially with the ADHD. Like that is the thing that impacts me on a daily basis. I don't have to feel guilty when 
I struggle to get things done. I, I've, I've been able to reframe what my own expectations for myself are. So for example, I used to beat myself up if I had a list of things to do on the weekend that I needed to get done around the house and I would only get two or three of them done. And I know that a lot of that is directly related to managing time and prioritizing and task initiation, all those executive functioning skills that go along with that ADHD piece. So now I've kind of set a different bar. It's like, okay, here's my whole list. I'm going to try to get three things done or two things done. And I'm going to be satisfied with that. And that works, you know, but, but I think that just that recognition, I think when I was younger, I was just pretty in my own head all the time. And I think those two experiences really just brought me out of that, made me more connected with the real world and with the people around me. What are some lessons that you've drawn from that? Not everybody has to like me. I can fix mistakes, whether they're mistakes that I make as a parent and how I you know, interact with my kids, or it's a mistake at work, or it's you know, some other interpersonal mistake. And that it's better to really hear what other people are saying instead of trying to construct a response. I think that those are probably, in a nutshell, how that kind of really manifests in my daily life. Two of those get to that perfectionism stuff you talked about. Mm-hmm. For me, with my ADHD diagnosis, I mentioned earlier that when I was young, I went through this whole process where I kind of denied that I had this diagnosis. So one of the things, you know, people who are really involved in the gifted education community, there is honestly a bit of a stigma surrounding various diagnoses, whether you're talking about autism or ADHD, whatever that, that label might be. And a lot of times people like to say characteristics of giftedness mimic those. And so then those diagnoses are inaccurate. So I kind of went through this, this place where I said, no, I don't know that that's really a diagnosis. I think I'm just kind of one of those quirky, absent-minded, gifted people, you know, whatever. And so I kind of really put that aside. So then all through my 20s and early 30s, I tried probably every different medication you could think of for, to manage my anxiety and my depression and couldn't figure out why I was always so stressed and unhappy. When my son got diagnosed when he was in second grade and started on medication, I saw a change in him that surprised me and made me decide to go back and talk to my doctor. And when I started back taking medication for ADHD, my anxiety evaporated. It was gone. And that's all because my anxiety was wholly centered around, oh my gosh, I've got to do all of these things. I can't get them all done. I'm a terrible person because I can't do that, you know, and to be fair, and I, you know, I still deal with some, a little bit of depression here and there, and, but I found something that really works, you know, but more than anything, I wish that I had not felt that pressure. I feel like ADHD is one of those diagnoses that people internalize its laziness, its lack of motivation. You just don't care if you just tried a little bit harder. And I internalized that myself, being able to really recognize that as an adult was very liberating in a lot of ways. I was no longer tied down to those expectations and it actually allowed me to be more successful and be happier instead of always feeling like I was living with this pressure over me of not being good enough. That's awesome. That's, that's a success story. That's phenomenal. It took a long time to get there. And I think that's why I'm so passionate about what I do when I'm talking to teachers and I'm doing, you know, whether I'm doing trainings or whether I'm just working with my clients in the office, helping them understand that what is neurodiversity how do we embrace that? How do we accept that? Where do we start with a strengths-based you know, experience for our kids and help them build from the strengths that they already have? Talk a little more about that strengths-based stuff. Well, you know, I feel like schools especially are so focused on the deficit model where, what are, where are the kids struggling? What do we need to do to build them up? Um, I actually have a book that I'm publishing next year through Free Spirit Publishing called Teaching Twice Exceptional Learners. And it's all about kind of bridging the gap between both, you know, gifted and special ed and the general ed classroom and kind of recognizing that you might have kids who are in special education services and are gifted, or you might, you know, how do we manage that? But also moving away from that deficit model, every child has strengths. If you have a, a lot of people who have ADHD are extremely creative and have wonderful divergent thinking skills, how can we harness that as the starting point for the skills that 
the academic skills that we want them to learn and let them build on that strength to bring those other skills up. If you take an ADHD kid who's struggling with reading and you sit them down in a room and force them to read and read and read, they're going to just hate reading more. They're not going to get to that point where they're able to, to manage that. But when you start with their strengths or like with, with writing, you know, if they do have that creativity, you know, if you can have them verbally describe what they're thinking and then use, you know, text to, uh, speech to text software or something along those lines and then have them write it, the writing is not the fine motor skills. What are we really looking for? But it's just kind of flipping that instead of always looking for the things that they're not doing well enough or they're struggling with and then, you know, drilling down on those and then ignoring those strengths because that's where if you don't foster those strengths, you're just going to end up with a kid who hates school <laughs> and hates learning. Right. It's critical that we shore the weaknesses up just enough so they don't hurt us anymore and then focus on those strengths. Otherwise, those weaknesses continue to get in the way. And I'm with you. Don't force a kid to read over and over and over again if they don't like to and they don't want to. It's not that you just pretend that they aren't there. But again, when I say strengths-based, I'm talking about the basis, our starting point. Now, the strength might be a passion about a particular topic. Okay, well, then let's find the things to read that are along those lines, you know. Or, I mean, there are just so many other ways to help kids develop that passion for learning. And ultimately, having kids who are self-directed, motivated learners of whatever they want to learn, that's what's going to propel them towards success in adulthood. Right. And if, if we just make them think that everything is drill and kill, you're just, you're just extinguishing any, any ember of motivation that might be there. Yeah. So as a mom, what are you doing to foster a love of learning in your kids? I think every parent would say this. My kids are so different from each other, you know, all three of them. I know one of the things that we did when I was a kid, nobody has these anymore, but we had a set of world book encyclopedias that we would be talking about something at the kitchen table and, you know, whatever it would be. And mom or dad would say, hey, go, go grab the world book. Let's look it up. You know, and so that's one of the things that we do. Of course, we use Google, right? Because that's, <laughs> that is the world. <laughs> but, but just like letting them go down those rabbit holes. Let's just explore. Let's just go watch some YouTube videos and see where we end up with stuff. My daughter was asking about, she's in fourth grade. She's nine. She was asking about why we use paper money when it's just paper. And so we started looking at some YouTube videos about how currency became a thing and how it started. And it used to be coins, but even before that it was shells. And, you know, it was, it was that curiosity and just embracing that curiosity and taking the short amount of time that it took to follow that was part of that. I also really, you know, try to, as much as I, it might sound like it, as I was talking about the 504 and the math class and all of those pieces, I don't make a big deal about grades with my kids. Um, I, I feel like grades are a measure of how well you're doing based on that particular teacher's measuring stick. I'm more focused on the growth that's taking place and, you know, making sure that I'm helping them and getting their work turned in and that they're doing the things that they need to be doing without necessarily having it be about the A or the B or the C. I think that takes away some of that pressure as well. Yeah, I would think. I'm terrible at making a big deal out of grades too. Like we'll review their report cards together and I might ask a couple questions, but by and large, I'm like, okay, cool. You got grades. Yay, grades. Well, and I think the thing is, it, okay, where do grades really make a difference? Getting into college? Kind of, a little bit, but, but really, but how much of a difference do they really make as far as getting into college? I live in St. Louis. And the University of Missouri, uh, of Missouri in Columbia, it's not the, there are two other kind of state level universities that are a little bit more difficult to get into, but University of Missouri is a really pretty great school for a lot of, you know, things. If you want to be pre-med, if you want to be journalism, well, you have to have a 24 ACT and I don't know exactly what the GPA cutoff is, but it's not, you don't have to have over a 4.0 to go to Mizzou. Mm -hmm. I feel like especially for kids who have executive functioning struggles, 
you know, where they say that brain doesn't finish developing until they're about 25. Well, by then they've already hopefully graduated from college, but, you know, hopefully that's catching up with them. I know for me, school didn't really probably click until about my third year of college. And then all of a sudden I was like, okay, I got this. And, you know, went on and got two extra master's degrees beyond that undergrad. But I almost failed fifth grade. My sophomore year of high school, my mom threw up her hands and kind of said, okay, Emily, you're on your own. You know, so I graduated high school and it was fine. I didn't, but I didn't have great grades. But, you know, I don't know how much, there are some kids who are intrinsically motivated to get those excellent grades. There are some kids who have that work ethic and it just comes to them naturally. And you know what? Great. And if they want to go to some of those top tier schools, that's wonderful. But me focusing on my sixth graders social studies grade for first quarter (laughs) and obsessing over the fact that he got a C on his report card instead of an A, that's not a make or break deal. And I would rather focus on my relationship with him and what he's actually learning about how to learn than what that outcome is. It's all about process instead of product. You know, what is, what is the process of learning as opposed to the end result of that particular grade? Awesome. Yeah, that's great. I completely agree with you that, that the, the process matters more than the product because the process never ends and the product is done once you make it, unless that's just part of the process. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that a lot of times, I think probably when I taught in gifted ed, that was a great thing was that we were really able to be much more process oriented um, because we weren't bound by some of the same grading standards that the schools had in a lot of ways. And so we would focus on individual goals that the kids had for whatever the project was that they were working on. And that was really much more helpful because they could see the growth, which is not necessarily always correlated with whatever the, whatever the grade is, whatever that outcome is. I wish that more teachers and parents were really able to focus on that, but we're so bound by the systems that we live in, you know, it's hard to break out of that. And earlier you mentioned intrinsic motivation. And that's been playing around in my head for this entire interview because lots of things have touched on that. So real quick, just for my listeners, intrinsic motivation is motivated internally. Extrinsic motivation is motivated by outside forces. So extrinsic is mom's going to be mad if I get a bad grade. Intrinsic is it's going to bother me if I get a bad grade, for example, or I just want to do well. That's intrinsic motivation as opposed to I want to do well because if I don't do well, I won't get the the prize that is being offered. That intrinsic motivation piece plays a role in making decisions around bumping your kid up a math level. Right. Right. If they're only extrinsically motivated around math and you jump them up a level, that's probably going to bite you in the butt because the kid doesn't care about math. But if they're intrinsically motivated and you bump them up a level, they're probably going to do better. And often it's a combination of intrinsic and extrinsic. So you kind of have to see where the balance is. But that also plays a role in sitting a kid down who's bad at reading and just being like, you're going to read for the next 48 hours straight. If that kid is intrinsically motivated, they're probably not going to come out the other end hating to read because they're intrinsically motivated to learn and get better at reading. So that's going to have some meaning for them. But if they're extrinsically motivated and they're only doing it because you made them and they don't care if they get better at reading or not, they are going to hate reading by the end of those 48 hours. So some of what we've talked about, the intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation of our kids plays a pretty prominent role in the effect that our strategies will have on them. Definitely. And are you familiar with the self-determination theory of motivation? Yes, I love talking about that with teachers and families because what it really does is it breaks down those intrinsic and extrinsic levels of motivation into more discrete levels. And it breaks down, like there are very few things that I am truly intrinsically motivated to do. Like I am intrinsically motivated to sit on a beach with a book and a drink in my hand, you know, like truly because intrinsic motivation in its purest form is basically doing something simply because you love to do it. The, the activity itself is the reward. But when you break it down, you know, you can look at, I can do something because like I love my job and I know I'm going to get a paycheck. Or, you know, there's some other levels of regulation there. And it really talks a lot about self-regulation. I think that that's a really great 
resource that families might want to look into to kind of get a better understanding of what, how they can kind of harness that motivation and help their kids be more intrinsically motivated. Can you expand a little bit on that self-determination theory? Just so that the listeners know what we're talking about. Yes. So you have at the top kind of intrinsic motivation where kids are really like I said, learning something just because they love to do it. So like my clients who come in and tell me every single detail about every single Pokemon card that they've memorized. <laughs> I know more about Pokemon than any grown woman should honestly know. But, you know, that's, that's intrinsic motivation. So then beneath that, you have two other levels that are consider, considered self-regulated levels of intrinsic motivation, meaning that the person is determining it on their own. They are making the decision of what level of motivation that they have. The first one is integrated regulation, which means that the activity that I'm doing and the thing that comes out of it is something that I find valuable and I'm willing to to work toward. So kind of the example I had about having a job that you enjoy, plus you get a paycheck, that's integrated regulation where they are intertwined. You really can't separate one from the other, but you're motivated to do them. I refer to that as the bonus level of motivation, right? You, you kind of enjoy doing this thing and you get this bonus. The next level beneath that, also a self-determined level of motivation is the identified regulation, which is I don't really like this activity, but I do like the thing that it's going to get me in the end. So I'm willing to do this because of this thing that I'm getting. Now, this is, you'll notice this sounds like extrinsic motivation, but here's kind of the difference. It's not coerced. It's not forced. So for example, my son has been always a little bit of a reluctant reader. In Missouri, we have what's called the, the Truman Book Award. And so Harry Truman was from the state of Missouri. So, they, so basically, kids who are in middle school, if they read a certain number of books, they get to vote, and then one of the books reads, wins this award. And he came home, and he was all of a sudden reading them, and he read like two or three of them. I think they have to read a minimum of four. And so I was kind of surprised by this, and we were talking about it. He's like, well, if I read four of these, I get to go to a pizza party. So that's an example of identified regulation. But the difference is that, it was his choice whether or not he could do it. It was optional. He was not required to do it. It wasn't like, oh, you have to do this. And when you're done with this, you get a pizza party. It's like, if you want to do this and you do it and you complete it, then you get this pizza party. So that's a self-determined level of intrinsic motivation, even though he's not necessarily intrinsically motivated to do the activity itself. Then you get into kind of those extrinsic levels of motivation and you have introjected regulation. And that's all about social expectations. I don't really care about this. I'm doing it because my parents and teachers want me to. On some level, that's not as bad as what you might see kind of with even further down that, on that extrinsic scale. So external regulation is the one beneath introjected regulation. And external regulation is basically like sticker charts and timeouts. I'm doing this because I'm either going to get a reward or I want to avoid a punishment. And that's really the only reason I'm doing it. And all of the research really shows that kids who go in that are in that level when you take away those sticker charts or those, whatever the reward is or the punishment, they're actually less motivated to do the task than they were in the first place. And then beneath that is a motivation where there's just a total lack of motivation, not even caring about it whatsoever. Um, even if there was a reward or a punishment, you wouldn't be motivated to do it. But, you know, so those are kind of those different levels of the self-determined motivation. And then the other three components that Desi and Ryan really talk about um, in their research is about you have to have a level of autonomy or independence in order to have that intrinsic motivation. You have to have a relatedness, whether that's to the person who's requesting you to do the task or a relatedness to the content itself. Or then finally, you have to feel competent. If you ask somebody to do something that they don't feel like they can do, you're just going to automatically zap any motivation that they might have. That's where my kids are tripping and falling down on band, right? Is mm. they don't particularly like the teacher. Mm-hmm. They don't feel competent because they just started drumming, I don't know, two months ago, and they're being forced to do it. So they have no autonomy at all. Why are they doing it? Yeah, we're pulling them out of band. They don't care. They don't want to do it. I do like that you're making them go and tell the guidance counselor. Because that is creating autonomy, mm -hmm. right? They're, they have the power to go and get out of it. It's encouraging a competence of advocating for themselves. And it's hopefully giving them one more touch with the guidance counselor in a positive light that will allow that relationship to become one of relatedness in the long run so that as the years of middle school progress, they feel more comfortable with their guidance counselor. 
Yeah, 100%. It doesn't make any sense to force somebody to keep doing something just for the sake. I, I always, that's another thing I think a lot of times I talk with families about. It's okay to drop a class. It's okay to drop that pre-AP class or whatever class it is if it's not like there's no reason that just because you said you were going to do something that you have to see it through in all situations. There are some situations where that's valuable. Yeah, particularly for kids, right? Because kids have to learn how to do stuff that sucks. Right, right. You can't just drop everything. But there are times when it's okay. And teaching kids how to measure that and how to determine you know, what, when it's okay to quit is an important skill. Yeah, I'm with you. And I, one of the things I said to my boys was, yeah, you can drop band, but we're going to have to do something else that sucks. <laughs> that's just what's going to happen if you're not going to do band we're going to find something else that sucks at the moment they do cub scouts cub scouts is fine they take kempo they were going once a week we've upped that to three times a week because i'm chasing competence because they're not engaged in kempo quite as much as i would like and a lot of that is the competence side so let's go more they they love master phil our sensei i also go to the go to the dojo i'm a brown belt they're orange belts but they go without me. Sometimes I'm there, but most of the time we drop them off and I leave so they can have that autonomy and have that doing it on their own kind of thing. But so we upped Kempo to three times a week, which sort of sucks, but it's not quite the level of suck that I want them to have. Because in this case, I'm defining it around a thing that is forcing you to manage anxiety, which is not quite what Kempo is. So I'm going to have to come up with something else that kind of forces them to manage anxiety because that's a thing that is hard that they need to learn to navigate. One of the things I think I'm going to make them do is go to a school dance because I know they're not going to want to, but I think that's going to be a piece of it. And I'm not sure what the other stuff is going to be, but um, I'll figure it out. I'm curious it, it, when you're uh, now I'm going to ask you a question, but you know, when you're working with your clients and kind of you touch on this with your kids, I noticed that a lot of times um, kids who have ADHD or other just executive functioning stuff going on um, sports, like anything in the martial arts realm is really, really good for them. Would you agree with that? And, and I'm kind of curious what your perspective is on why you think that is. I think there's a few reasons. And, and I, certain, I have clients that are like all about baseball. My son plays baseball. Blows my mind because baseball, it, it's so boring. Like I played baseball and it's just, it is not an ADHD friendly sport unless I guess you find the boring parts meditative and then maybe that's where it comes from. Uh, it's amazing to see how focused Grayson is when he's out there on the field. Okay. Infield? Yeah. He plays first base usually or he pitches. But yeah, but it's a little... I played softball as a kid. I was in outfield and I used to sit out there and look for four leaf clovers. So <laughs> me too, <laughs> but yeah, no, sorry. So go ahead. So I think there's a few different things going on, right? One with team sports, if you're not hooked by it and you're not deeply engaged by it, so you kind of suck, you are hurting everybody else. And specifically for boys, there's that natural competition thing that tends to happen. If I'm better than you, you're better than me, that stuff. So if you're the worst one on the team or at least perceive yourself as being the worst one on the team, that can make it hard to want to stick through as opposed to something like a martial art where it's more individual. It's more about how you're doing as it compares to you and you progress at the rate that you progress. Yeah. You can be sparring with people and, and then it's sort of me versus you, but it's not, if I suck at this, then we're going to lose the game. It's if I suck at this, I'm going to get punched or kicked. And that's immediate feedback. It's not a drawn out like two hours later, I find out I was bad. There's that component. And martial arts has more of an internal communication almost. Like when you're doing the martial arts and you're sort of shifting your body and twisting your body sometimes and throwing with your left and throwing a fist punch with your right. And there's more of a proprioceptive feedback component that can help a kid with attentional issues get into their body in a way that not all sports can do without being either very physical like football because you're getting crashed into or something like hockey where you're just going fast and that gets you into your body. It's a different kind of body awareness that it creates that is meditative. It is balancing. So you come out of it more balanced in a way that you don't necessarily come out of hockey or soccer or something like that. Yeah. My daughter does gymnastics. Same idea. But I, I, I find that that's really true a lot of times for families that that's that, especially in the martial arts, that seems to be a really good fit for some of those kids. 
And also martial arts encourages meditation. Mm -hmm. Like that's typically a component of many martial arts. You have to be very connected. Yeah. And, and very just mindful of what's happening in every moment. And there's still a speed and rapidity of thought that happens. Like when I spar, that's the most in the moment I'm ever going to be ever is when I'm sparring with someone because I don't want to hurt them, but I do want to hit them. And so I have to get, I have to be faster than they are to be able to hit them. But then I have to be able to slow that punch down in an instant or that kick down in an, in an instant so that I don't hurt them, but I do connect or I almost connect depending on what kind of sparring we're doing. So all of that being said, just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? Coming to a place with your child that is one of radical acceptance is kind of the place that you can be. Radical acceptance doesn't mean that you don't provide guidance or help or redirection, but it does mean that you accept them for who they are. And I know how hard that is for kids who have emotional regulation difficulties or are constantly getting in trouble at school or are constantly causing problems at home, you know, whatever the case may be. I mean, I know that that happens, but letting your kids know that you're there for them is the one thing that will make the biggest difference. And I know for me, knowing that my mom was in my corner when I was a kid, knowing that when my fifth grade teacher wanted to hold me back and keep me from going to my gifted ed program because I wasn't doing well enough in her class, knowing that my mom was going to go in there and kind of have my back made all the difference. Because in a lot of ways, for me as a kid, I felt really alone as far as peers or knowing that the teachers were with me. You know, I would get called out by the teachers asking me if I'd remember to take my medication that day, which was really hard. And you never really know how kids are going to interpret or internalize things from the outside world. But the one thing you can control is how they understand what you think and feel about them. And they need that. They need that support. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.